Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, I want you to support your uh, friendly neighborhood journalist. Is that us? Have we earned it? I think maybe. If not us, somebody else. If it's us, it's super easy. You can do it in a couple of minutes when you click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join, or you can just send us money at support at canadalandshow.com. And what we want to do, because we appreciate your support, is we want to give you ad-free versions of this podcast, and you can get them in just moments when you do help us. Thank you very much. Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, co-host of our own Wag the Doug, joining me from her home in Toronto. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hi, Jesse. Allison, today we're going to talk about that time that the police searched reporters' locked offices at the Alberta Legislature Press Gallery. No warrants, no big deal. And we're going to talk about the welfare slacker CEO of the National Post and his shakedown of a new potential sugar daddy, Mark Zuckerberg. Good to have you here. Let's go. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Josh Benlulu, Callum Moffat, Jen Berg, Diane Coyle, Eric Kelch, James Chapman, Masa, and Liz. My name is Liz. I'm a pilot from Vancouver. 
I support Canada Land because I believe independent news organizations are important to the health of the Canadian public discourse and because of the good work they've done on stories like the Thunder Bay podcast. The Toronto Star reported that the police were investigating a laptop theft in the Alberta legislature, some some laptops. They're encrypted, not to worry, uh, belonging to the Alberta Health Ministry. They went missing. So the cops, I wonder if this, this stuff isn't happening everywhere now that all these buildings are kind of shut down, no one's around. So somebody stole these laptops and the cops are searching for the laptops in the legislature and no warrant, no permission. They went into the locked press gallery offices. The Alberta legislature has offices set aside for journalists, the Toronto Star and other organizations, and they just went searching through the reporters' offices as they were searching for these laptops, which, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to ascribe any nefarious motives to this. I don't think they were, like, trying to go through reporters' files, but it kind of struck me like that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, and we don't know whether the cops, you know, how long they were in the offices, whether or not they were, you know, ruffling through papers and drawers, or if they just did more of a cursory search to either, like, look for the person who stole the laptops or, you know, just a, a laptop itself. But you're right, they didn't have a warrant. They left some of the offices unlocked after they left, which was how one of the ways that the reporters knew this happened. There also was one or two witnesses that were working in other offices and, and saw the cops do it. So uh, those were also journalists. So yeah, the outlets who had their offices searched are definitely not happy about this. I think it's interesting that this really hasn't got a lot of play in the press. Um, whereas you can imagine if like the Globe and Mail's office in downtown Toronto, you know, was raided by the Toronto police force, like, what a conniption fit that would spark. I kind of read this story as, again, I, I didn't think that this was cover for some, like, infiltration of the press. Uh, but I did feel like there is, in non-COVID times, like, it is understood that the police have to tread very lightly when dealing with, with things like the property of the press or, or the offices of the press. And I thought, wow, how quickly those sorts of protocols and policies and just sort of respect for the autonomy and independence of the press can be forgotten. And, you know, I wonder if we'll get it back. And then I remember that you had reached out to me to kind of raise this issue that like a lot of stuff in terms of just how legislatures have traditionally respected the press or made room for the press or, or just space that the press has earned over time has quickly evaporated. And will we ever get it back? Can you tell me a bit about why you reached out to me about that? And also, like, you've got a connection to the Alberta legislature as well. I mean, you're not just uh, operating here in Ontario. Yeah, no. So one of the reporters who works for me in Alberta, uh, the head reporter at Alberta Today, one of our newsletters, Catherine Gakowski, happens to be the press gallery president in Alberta or in Edmonton. So she had to meet with the speaker about this. She's quoted in the Toronto Star story. So she's kind of handling, I guess, where this goes from here. The press galleries across the country kind of operate the phrases at the pleasure of the speaker. So the speaker is basically who grants them the right and the space to have offices in these buildings, to hold scrums, you know, to set up their cameras outside of the, the chamber and, you know, shove microphones in, in politicians' faces. But I think that when it comes to the offices, it should come with some guarantee of privacy. 
unlike everyone else who works in in the legislature, they work for the government in some capacity, whereas journalists very much do not. So whether or not this is, you know, a sign of the end of <laughs> journalists' privacy and, and space in legislatures, I don't necessarily think so. But along the way with, you know, how reporting on politics has changed during the pandemic, press galleries have had to give up a lot of their space in a different way when it comes to access. So, you know, journalists and the public are hearing from politicians, I'd say more than ever now. You know, we have Premier Doug Ford, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau holding news conferences every single day, other premiers doing the same. But no longer are reporters allowed to be in that space and, and, you know, force their way into asking a question. It's now all happening via a telephone line and an operator and someone else uh, mediating who gets to ask questions on behalf of the public. So again, like, you know, maybe nothing nefarious going on here, but a very different power dynamic from having a press conference where, you know, like they always try to control the press and say, OK, you're the next one to ask a question. But then, you know, you, you, you can just shout out a question or ask for a follow up. And then there's the opportunity to scrum politicians gone. Now they've got like, you know, virtual press conferences where they can really say like, OK, let's let's plan this out. We're going to choose five reporters. Each gets one question. Is anything changing about like uh, questions being filed in advance or, do, or can you still have the autonomy to kind of surprise them with, with a question that they you know don't know what, what you're going to ask? No, nothing seems to be the questions themselves aren't aren't being vetted and who's determining who gets the questions differs from place to place. My understanding is with the federal government, it's uh, all happening via the same bureaucratic run uh, teleconference system that, that is used all the time there. In Ontario, they don't really the government doesn't really do a lot of teleconferences. So uh, my understanding is that it's being run by the premier's office. So they're selecting who gets to ask the questions, um, although not what the questions are. And who are they selecting? Well, for at least the first five, six weeks of this, it was more or less the same reporters every day. A lot of television reporters, radio reporters, news talk is getting a lot of questions in. Um, whereas smaller outlets are, you know, were kind of shafted to the side and, and still are to this day. I'd say in the past week, the range of reporters has sort of opened up since people have been complaining on social media, to be honest, which is good and hopefully keeps going in that direction. But I think, you know, because we don't know how long this is going to last, the press galleries across the country need to, you know, step up and, and seize this power back. Early in the in the pandemic, when one or two reporters, I think, were still allowed to attend the, the live press conference, one of the members of the Ontario Press Gallery executive, Rob Ferguson from the Toronto Star, he was going and he was taking questions from press gallery members by email and then reading them out and saying, you know, the name of the journalist and their outlet as he did it. And that was great. So if, you know, the press gallery can find ways to to bring that back i think that would be good but yeah scrums are such an important way that reporters get to talk to ministers especially maybe lower profile ministers or ministers that aren't involved in you know the daily announcements so you know we're seeing a lot from the long-term care minister the health minister well what about the minister of natural resources if you want to ask him a question then you're kind of shit out of luck right now I can't help remember um, what Tim Busquet of the Halifax Examiner told me about um, 
his experience on one of these teleconference uh, press availabilities uh, when he was trying to get information from the RCMP in the aftermath of that uh, horrific mass shooting in Nova Scotia. He's waiting to ask a question and who gets picked before him. There was like a gun lobbyist, not a journalist, but a gun lobbyist was uh, cherry picked to ask the RCMP a question. Any place where there's press availability, it seems like the power has shifted to the people running those press availabilities and press events to choose who their inquisitors are going to be. And I can't help but notice that, like, you add all of these things up and there's so many ways in this time of, of COVID that the government can kind of shape who the press is. And it's it's cutting out certain players. So, you know, the province of Ontario was allocating advertising money to the press that they want to and denying it to the press that they don't want to. They can choose who questions them and who doesn't get to question them. It really feels like it is contracting in a way that is shutting out smaller outfits and the upstarts. While I was mulling all of this to prepare for the episode, I started thinking about, you know, scrums in general as like a physical experience and wondering whether or not they're even going to come back after COVID or what they will look like. There's been all these lifestyle articles in places like the New York Times you know, about how the handshake is over or the double kiss hello is over. And I wonder whether or not like scrums will be added to that list. Like, can you imagine a time anytime soon where, where journalists are, you know, shoving wet mics into politicians faces and all clumping together like that? I wonder, <laughs> will that happen again? Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. And, and again, I don't think that any of this is like by design. I just think that like, you know, a lot of people are saying like, oh, we're actually coming to recognize how much work can be done remotely. And, you know, I think people are kind of like realizing, oh, some things are actually kind of working better for us. And to the powers that be and people who, uh, you know, don't love being held accountable by the press, but that's sort of part of their job. They're, I think they're seeing like, oh, there's a real advantage to this way of doing things. Uh, is there a way to avoid a, a clawback? You know, like, do we have to give this back? And, you know, Certainly you can justify killing the, the practice of scrums through some kind of like health uh, pretense. So I, I do wonder about that. I also wonder about, you know, you add up all the different ways that things are changing. I also noticed uh, Jeremy Clausus, the publisher of The Sprawl, which is fantastic online only. They used to call themselves a pop-up news organization in Alberta covering Calgary. And they were applying, and I think it was like a long, drawn-out process of trying to get some of this uh, government bailout money for a local reporter through this local reporter fund, which is administered by the newspaper lobby. And they ultimately turned him down because they added a rule, no pop-up journalism outfits, <laughs> which seems like a, like, I remember the episode of The Simpsons, the, the No Homers Club. Like, there's only one news outfit in Canada that has ever called itself a pop-up journalism outfit, as far as I can tell. And that's, uh, with all due respect to Wag the Dug, the pop-up <laughs> podcast, Allison, uh, I think The Sprawl is the only like news organization that said we're a pop-up uh, news outfit. And they've since changed that. Maybe maybe they caught wind that this was going to be excluded. I don't know. But no, uh, he got shut out of that funding, which is government funding after all. What's your take on this? Were you uh, applying for any of that local reporter money? I did not apply for local journalism money. Because uh, I didn't think that the you know mandate for what they wanted to do really fit with how our our company uh, works, but I did apply for the so-called newspaper bailout or, or qualified Canadian journalism organization authentication. I don't know, uh, trying to become one of those. But I have uh, the CRA asked me a few questions about my application, and that was probably I haven't heard from them for more than a month. So I. Do not know the the status of that. 
You know, Blacklock's reporter, that uh, small digital news outfit in Ottawa, they have reported that CRA won't disclose who has applied. You know, the government, the federal government has said that there will be transparency in this. I mean, of course we should know who has applied for the money, who's been denied, who gets it. I think we're going to find out who gets it. Mm -hmm. I think that they've committed to that. But like, I'm more interested in who gets rejected. That's interesting information. And the CRA has, has said that they're not going to tell us who's applied. And it's interesting because, you know, at certain levels of this process, if you're talking to the lobby group that's pushing for this or if you're talking to government who's paying for it, they all uh, got the memo on referring to this as the news media subsidy, not the newspaper bailout. Critics like me call it a newspaper bailout. They call it a news media subsidy. But the CRA didn't get that memo. When the CRA was explaining to Blacklocks that uh, they're not going to be disclosing this information, they said, we are responding to the call of our newspapers. So <laughs> don't take it from me that this is uh, really just an initiative to bail out one specific dying industry. The Canadian Revenue Agency also confirms that this is all about responding to the call of the newspapers. I mean, yeah, that's funny. And, and one of the reasons, to be honest, that I applied, well, I mean, firstly, I, whatever, money is good. I want to pay my reporters more. And if, you know, the government's going to help me do that as a small business owner in a competitive industry, I think it's responsible. And you know what? Uh, the government of Canada bails out a whole lot of industries, so I kind of look at it from that point of view. But also, as like kind of an experiment, we we know, and you've talked about this a lot, that the the criteria the government came out with for this bailout was weighted really heavily in favor of newspaper publishers, to say the least. But they also said they want to spur, you know, innovation in small businesses. So I want to know whether the company I built, which is like one of truly just a handful of successful news startups that have actually panned out in Canada in the last decade, like fits that distinction for them. And, and if not, why? Yeah. First of all, I don't think you've got anything to explain or apologize for. I mean, we get very, very, you know, in the weeds and critical about this, but this is a news organization that's focused on media itself. So I think that like weighing the issue of, of whether this is good or bad for news is like, that's a Canada land issue. Uh, from your perspective of a, a digital upstart trying to sustain and, and thrive and survive, if the government's going to be bailing out these massive competitors, uh, you know, failing as they are, they're way bigger than you. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would like not go for that money, like I don't fault or blame any other publisher for going for that money. You got to do what you got to do. But what I think has happened in practice is the promise that there might be something in there for the small publishers, I think, made it difficult for organizations like your own to really get out there and criticize this or take a position. Uh, I know that amongst a lot of small digital publishers, there was a lot of consternation, both on an ideological level and you know, practically, who's going to get this? Is it going to be them exclusively or is there something for me? But if you're trying to get that money, you don't want to be out there throwing stones. And I think that uh, a lot of people kind of kept their, their powder dry for that reason. And now that it's being revealed that like, yeah, there's really very little in, in there going to small outfits. I kind of feel like they played a lot of the small digital players. I mean, I was not like, I didn't involve myself, to be honest, at all. I know other outlets did and kind of like lobbied the government in, in various ways. But I mean, what's the, you know, you kind of have two options. You either you know, try to play their game and get in their faces and maybe become like, what if Queen's Park today became the liberal government's like show pony for this as, you know, a small successful outlet that is getting the funding? Like, I don't want to be that either. Um, so it kind of doesn't give you a lot of a lot of wiggle room for how to approach it. 
Yeah, you don't want to be tokenized. It's interesting for me to see that even some of the outfits, like, you know, what are your options? You could ignore the whole thing. You could apply and hope for the best. Erin Millar over at the Discourse, she got, I think, very heavily involved in, like, I'm going to go through the proper channels and lobby and push the agenda. I think she tried to organize a bunch of digital publishers, like, we need to have a seat at this table. And, I, you know, I think tried to make it as advantageous to small digital companies as possible. And I think they got something in the mix. And this is what I've been saying from the start, is, like, they've had to actually change what they are to fit into the bucket, you know? The criteria, you know, written by the, the old industry, a new company says, okay, well, we want the money, so I guess we're gonna change ourselves and we'll become this and we won't do that. And she said it actually decreased from their innovation. They had to kind of like limit their own innovative efforts in order to be the kind of company that could benefit from this. Right, and I very much didn't wanna do that. Like <laughs> my company is, is working the way it is, but I think you know it's fair for it to be on a fair playing field with other publishers. So I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. I will note that the Blacklock story noted the 29, I think, firms applied, um, which one of the things I thought was funny about my application or like my CRA file number for it was that it was like 0000011. <laughs> Uh, what kind of questions was the CRA getting in touch? It's just so weird. The CRA asking you whether you're like a qualified journalistic organization. What kind of questions were they asking? Lots of it was really focused on like where your reporters live and like that you are for sure operating in Canada seemed to be a pretty big focus of theirs. But again, you're just really talking to like an accountant bureaucrat who didn't seem to know much about the news media landscape. The weirdest question they asked me was like where my servers are stored um, for my for hosting the website, which it turns out uh, because my website uses Squarespace, the servers are in the United States, which appeared to be like somewhat of a problem for them, although they did not explain why. And again, what? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> just very bizarre. I, I wonder <laughs> if they know that uh, one of the Toronto Star's new editors of their newsletter is based in Iceland. And mm. I wonder if that uh, I wonder if that journalist, uh, Toronto Star, is trying to get that journalist's salary subsidized. Yeah, who knows? I mean, stay tuned. I will let you know how this how this pans out. Allison, we're going to duly note some stuff. I think it's time. What do you have? I wanted to duly note that Hollywood is taking a second run at the Rob Ford saga. AMC announced earlier this week that it's going to film a new television series, uh, which will be directed by Michael Dowes. He's a London, Ontario-born director known for FUBAR and Goon. These aren't movies I've seen, but apparently they're like dark comedies. Uh, so that's going to be the tone of it. Fubar is funny. I don't know if it's a dark comedy, but that's actually kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, I mean, the last one, Run This Town, was uh, a pretty big flop uh, take on, on Rob Ford's stint as mayor. Listeners, if you haven't heard our Wag the Doug episode about this, uh, about the film, go download it. It's episode 17, I believe. The title is The Sad State of the Liberal Party, but I promise there is a film review in there. And I guess I'm just interested to see how Hollywood does it again. I'm kind of curious to see if they do a better job of handling the Jonathan Goldsby character. I was not happy with the characterization. It just didn't seem to capture his essence in the first one. Yeah, I'll agree. I, I did enjoy the experience, however, of, of sitting in a, in a theater beside someone who was the inspiration for a character on the screen. I think that's the first time <laughs> that's happened to me. <laughs> duly noted. I want to duly note something that the Globe and Mail did, which is wonderful. And that is that they have a permanent Thunder Bay Bureau 
and that the person who uh, is that bureau is Willow Fiddler, formerly of APTN. You know, when they announced that they were setting up shop for a one-year Thunder Bay bureau, one of the journalists involved got in touch uh, to say some kind things about our Thunder Bay podcast and, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about what it's like to to cover Thunder Bay as an outsider. And uh, that was nice to chat with them. But my first question was like, wait a second, what, like you're not actually hiring anyone in Thunder Bay. And by the way, are you hiring any indigenous journalists to like, like what's going on? And it turned out that they were like sending the reporters for like three month stints to go and live in an Airbnb in Thunder Bay. And, you know, the results I've been vocal about on the show, it's going to be what you get if you come in for three months and try, you know, it was, it was journalism about Thunder Bay, not by Thunder Bay and not for Thunder Bay. And, you know, like we moved in as outsiders, but like we tried to, and we benefited from a lot of help from local journalists there. And, and one of them was Willow Fiddler of APTN. Anyhow, all of this is to say that I think this is like a wonderful hire by the Globe and Mail. And I think that it shows an actual commitment to uh, a permanent presence there and to hear from an indigenous perspective what is happening in Thunder Bay. This is the right kind of thing. And uh, I wanted to duly note it. Yeah, congrats to her. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Allison, I want to tell you, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you about a simple guy who had some new ideas. A guy way back in 1997, who said, hey, is it so crazy to imagine, to dream that there might be room in Canada for a newspaper with a different point of view? 
a newspaper that challenges, you know, the powerful, smug Upper Canada Laurentians, a paper that will fight for low taxes, for free markets, for free enterprise, that will tell the government to back off with all of the interference and regulations and just let let companies and corporations succeed or fail on their own merits. Well, that young man, his name was Conrad Black. Conrad Black would be spinning in his grave right now if he could see what has become of his beloved National Post. I refer, of course, to a recent editorial written in part by the current CEO of uh, Post Media, an urgent message to the government of Canada. After begging for like taxpayer money in like direct opposition to its political principles and ideologies, now the CEO, Andrew McLeod, he of the $2.5 million compensation per year with bonuses, uh, he now is asking, urging, urgently demanding, really, that the government step in and regulate Facebook and Google. We, the undersigned publishers representing the vast majority of Canadian newspapers, call on Ottawa to follow the example of France. <laughs> Post media wants more like a, a, what the government of France is doing and Australia. And what they're saying is the new plan is they've already got what they wanted in the $600 million uh, newspaper bailout from the government. Now what they want is Google and Facebook's money. And apparently Australia and France are already doing this. And what they want is that Google and Facebook have taken the ad market away and they need to now pay their fair share because, of course, they, they scrape. They include links and metadata from a lot of uh, newspaper publishers. So what they want is a uh, government to force Google and Facebook to share the ad revenue that is generated by those links. That means paying for copyrighted content and sharing those advertising dollars and the data that flows from it. Signed, Andrew McLeod, CEO of Postmedia, along with um, other uh, welfare bums like uh, the billionaire James Irving of the Irving family, Brunswick News International, Philip Crawley representing the billionaire Thompson family, and on and on. And I note that this, this appeared just days after uh, National Post columnist John Iveson wrote that Trudeau's lavish handouts risk turning workers into welfare slackers. I could probably go on about the newspaper barons and uh, the hypocrisy here for some time, but I, I think it might be more interesting to actually take a close look at this specific initiative to get Facebook and Google to share ad revenue with all of the news companies whose content you'll find on, on Google News or, or in Facebook news feeds. Have you been following this? Well, yeah, I was. I looked into exactly what Australia and, and France are doing or attempting to do and you know, the conclusion that I came out of this with is like, I don't have a problem with the newspapers asking for Facebook and and Google to pay a tax or pay them some sort of uh, subsidy to cover their content. I just think <laughs> there's no way in hell it's ever going to happen. Like, if you actually look what Australia is doing, they're trying to get their competition bureau to, quote, frame a mandatory code of conduct between media outlets and digital platforms they pushed the deadline for this from November to July, so they made it come faster. But it's like, woo, scary. Like, the number of lobbyists and power these tech companies have to push and delay these type of laws is literally endless. And the fact that these newspaper publishers think that the Canadian government is somehow going to be able to force them to you know, see these demands is like kind of laughable as much as it is like sweet, like, oh, guys, yeah, <laughs> sure. It's not going to happen. 
Well, ye of little faith. In fact, it already happened. Uh, they tried it out in 2014. Germany trialed a copyright law that would grant publishers licensing fees from quoted content. So here's what happened. Uh, you know, if if you scrape a few sentences of summary of an article, you know, in Google News, you're going to have to pay uh, some kind of like a, they called it a link tax to the newspaper publisher. So Google stopped scraping those sentences. Right. So they just started writing right? headlines, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they just stopped listing extracts. And you know what happened? Who got hurt by that? The publishers. Their traffic from Google News dropped 80%. And the guy who runs Google News said, look, Google News isn't stealing your ad money. There's no ads on Google News. You know, he said, we provide this as a service to our readers. And the publishers cried mercy. And they said, we want Google to scrape. I mean, any publisher can just turn off. You put out, the, what is it, the robot TXT file in, and then, you know, you can't scrape the metadata into Google or Facebook. It's completely an optional participatory thing. And, you know, they, they send billions of clicks to these newspapers, and then those clicks turn into display advertising dollars or subscriptions on the news sites. They're saying that what failed then... You know, and it was the newspapers who said, we don't want them to pay the link taxes anymore. We want the traffic back. So what failed in 2014, they think can work now. And I just, I don't understand how, like, you could get it, like, on an ideological high horse about this. Because, you know, asking any website to pay a tax for links is not how the internet works. The internet is built on linking. And if you can't link freely, then the internet stops functioning. And, you know, there's a whole discourse around copyright that I spent many years engaged in. But okay, maybe you could put Google and Facebook in a separate category, as has been suggested. They're, they're not just any other website. These are public utilities at this point. Let's uh, make them give back. And then you get into all kinds of thorny issues around like, okay, well, do they have to pay anybody they link to the content of or just news publishers? And then who determines who's a news publisher and who isn't a news publisher? Maybe you get over that hurdle and then you find yourself in an environment where now you've once again got news companies getting money from Google or Facebook on the basis of which content gets the most clicks on Google or Facebook. We tried that before. It was disastrous. Turning news companies into just like click hunters, as was happened like five years ago when, when display advertising was still profitable, it degraded the news product entirely. And even so, you are now building the news business model on algorithms that are controlled by Google and Facebook. Like, I just, you know, it's not even on an ideological level that you have to come at this. Like, on a practical level, this is just a very bad solution to the problem. Yeah, and I mean, it's never going to happen. Countries are still trying to chase Facebook for taxes they owe them for other ad revenue that's just sold in their, you know, within their jurisdiction. These companies have offshore bank accounts and like Facebook declared $17 billion in earnings in the last quarter. And that was like told to their shareholders with the caveat that that was despite ad revenue declines. Like they just they are the next nation states of power and the Canadian government isn't going to be able to do anything to make them bend to their will. I was thinking about this like you told uh, your old story about uh, Sir Conrad Black, but I was thinking about uh, Stephen Harper, actually. If you remember, like back a decade ago, one of these, uh, one of his and his conservative government at the Times kind of dog whistles was the Netflix tax. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember Stephen Harper delivering an address uh, in front of a screen saying like, you know, like, I am a human being and I enjoy watching Netflix content and I will <laughs> not be taxing your Netflix. Exactly. And I feel like that I mean, that ad was it was funny and is kind of notorious for its uh, 
honestly, weirdness. But what he was, you know, railing on about was the conservatives won't tax your Netflix subscription, but if you elect Justin Trudeau, he will, which he didn't. But that was kind of setting the stage for how the Canadian government was going to work with tech companies. Why was it so crazy that they would charge HST on a $10 monthly subscription that people in Canada are paying for? They set it up so that these companies could run rampant here, and they're just continuing to do that. I actually disagree with a lot of what you're saying. Like, first of all, you know, there's a couple of issues with the Netflix tax. One is just like, yeah, they should pay HST like anybody else. And I think that the liberals are trying to push that through. But then there was this other thing about how they should pay into the into the CanCon fund. And that's still an ongoing initiative. And is that going to show up on your bill for Netflix? Um, and I think that's what, you know, Stephen Harper, I don't know, he's just gesturing towards all of it as, uh, you know, getting in the way of, of consumer rights. But to the question of are these companies just such kind of like massive nation states, uh, tax scoff laws? We, we, we can't possibly get them in line. I actually support regulating these companies uh, in the form of antitrust. I think we could break them up. And I think that that could have, uh, that, that is overdue. We need to do that and figure out how to do it properly. But what they're suggesting here, like to actually like, you know, say that when Google or Facebook serves a certain kind of link, they're going to have to pay out money. Well, they could just downgrade those links, you know? You know, we, we said earlier they could just not scrape, you know, they scrape the headline and the image, but not the metadata, not the synopsis. That's one thing they could do. They could also say, all right, if we make more money off of sending people to like somebody's Instagram account, which we own, or sending you to non-news stuff, uh, we're not going to really see any big downturn in traffic. We'll just degrade news in our algorithm. You know, like like the idea that, that this is, I think it all stems from, and I've heard this from news bosses who, who really, they really do believe believe that because the ad market that they used to really have a monopoly over, like you really, like you had to buy ads in newspapers if you wanted to reach local markets, because that market is now like 80% Google and Facebook, they say, and because Google and Facebook have something to do with serving people news content, they just consider this theft. They just feel like that's our money and we still own a claim to it. And the way that Google and Facebook built their empires is by somehow nefariously stealing our content. And I think that there's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the fact that, like, they do advertising better. You know, these are technologies that can offer advertisers so much more data specificity and targeting and measurability that it's not going to go back. It's never again, ever going to be the newspapers that are in control of that ad market because they were just disrupted and overtaken by a superior technology. And they don't have some God-given claim to those ad dollars. You know, the bottom line here is like, this This isn't going to work. I just, I don't think that the future of the news business model is going to be forcing Google and Facebook to spit back money that they feel that, that uh, you know, they have some kind of inherent holy right to. No, I agree. Um, I think it's, you know, bullshit that Facebook is making $17 billion a quarter and newspapers all across the world are, you know, at the same time furloughing workers at a time when people are, you know, reading the news and relying on the news more than ever. Like, it's not fair and it's not good for the public or democracy or uh, journalism, but... I agree. I don't think that this method is the way forward. And like I said, it's there's no chance in hell it's going to happen. <laughs> they can just well, flip a switch, right? Like everything you're saying about downgrading links, changing algorithms, a government would have to spend, you know, years trying to write this law and pass it. And then Google or Facebook spends five minutes and they change how the whole system works and you start from scratch again. 
Allison, thank you for enduring my rant. That is Canada Land Shortcuts for today. It has never been easier to support this show and get ad-free versions of our podcast. Just click on the link in the podcast. You'll get an ad-free feed of Canada Land Bloop just installed right on your podcast app for five bucks Canadian a month. And you can also get that at canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We're on Instagram at Canada Land Show. But Allison Smith, where can people find you and your new site? You can find me on Twitter at at Queens Park Today. And our new site is politicstoday.news. Our website is canadalandshow.com. I want everybody to listen to uh, Commons is not only publishing different stuff. They've pivoted and are now focusing on the pandemic and on long-term care, but they're publishing much more frequently, short little episodes looking at how we got into this disastrous and disgraceful situation with long-term care in Canada. Subscribe to Commons right now. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thank you.